Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. My guest today is an author I've talked a lot about. He's been on my show a number of times, and I'm so excited to have him back. It's been a long time. Dan Coyle is the New York Times bestselling author of The Talent Code and The Little Book of Talent, as well as others. And today he's here to talk about his latest book, The Culture Code. So I'm so excited that Dan and I are going to be talking about this and cultures and organizations and in workplaces. So we're really looking at the group. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll circle back after my interview with Dan. Dan, hello, and welcome back to my show. It's good to be back. It's been a little while. It's very fun to be back with you, Corinne. I'm so excited to be talking to you about The Culture Code, your latest book. And I want to jump right into this idea of belonging, which you spent quite a bit of time Mm -hmm. talking about in organizations and companies. Why is it so important to have the sense of belonging? Well, you know that feeling you get when you walk into a room and people are kind of connected and, and you get it at a, you know, walk into your favorite school or your favorite family, your favorite restaurant, your favorite business. And that sort of instant connection that you can feel in certain places. And it sort of feels like the word we use to describe that is usually like chemistry. And, and it just sort of seems like this magical thing you have sometimes. Well, it turns out after spending five years looking into what that's made of, a huge part of that has to do with safety, it has to do with this feeling of safety and connection that gets created. It doesn't happen magically. It's actually built um, through signals. And that's just the way our brains are built. Our brains are built to worry about safety and to think about our safety and to check in with our safety, especially as in a social group. And the, my favorite story about this, about this whole idea is uh, this crazy contest this guy had building towers. And he had teams of CEOs, he had teams of lawyers, teams of MBAs, and he had teams of kindergartners. And if you had to kind of bet your life savings which team would be better at tower building, you you probably wouldn't bet the kindergartners. And when you look at them work, they all sort of – all the adult groups are, look like they're cooperating really well. But the kindergartners end up winning every time because they're they're safe. <laughs> they belong. They, they, they connect instantly. They start building stuff. They're shoulder to shoulder, high energy, doing a lot of iterations. And the adults are like – like trying to figure out where they stand with each other. Like they're a little more pulled back. They're just like, who's in charge here? Is it okay to say that? And all those things that, that kill safety um, limit how well a group can perform. So performance doesn't have to do with how smart you are. It has to do with how safe you are. And safety is all about sending these belonging cues, sending cues that you're connected, sending signals that you share a future. And the groups that I visited and it was Navy SEALs and Pixar and, and, and the San Antonio Spurs and IDEO and Zappos and all these other amazing groups, along with some not so amazing groups. I visited some terrible groups too. Um, the good ones all are really good at flooding the zone with these, with these feelings and, and these signals of connection. I think that belonging is such an important thing. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that's really important to me and why swimming was such a huge part of my life was mm-hmm. I would go to swim practice as a little kid, really shy, not very confident. And every mm-hmm. day my coach would just say, hello, Corinne. And he was happy to see me. 
And with the team that I run now, I mean, that's one of the things I really emphasize is that I want kids to have a place to belong. Like if we can focus on that, the other stuff will come, but we have to have a place where kids know that they belong. And, and what, and then it it spirals from the kids to then the parents and the parents like to be a part of the community because they're like, Oh, I have some place I can belong. I can be me and not be judged. And we can just all be our authentic self, which is quite vulnerable. That's right. It sounds sort of when you when you do, when you talk about it sometimes it stuff can sound sort of woo woo. You know, it can sound <laughs> soft, like oh, we just need a place we can breathe. Well, that actually lines up really closely with the hard science, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a ton. It's not about sort of woo woo kumbaya. It is about sending a really clear signal, like your coach did. It's mm-hmm. good to see you. Like I see you as an individual. In fact, this whole book, this whole cultural book, actually started with a moment exactly like that. Um, uh, I don't. I could tell you the story. Yes. If you're it's like so. I'm at this place. It's it's a it's a tennis club outside of Moscow. It's called Spartak, and they've produced tons of champions. It's mm-hmm. an unbelievable place. And of course, there are a lot of good young players there. And I was there during a day, long day of practice. The door sort of squeaks open, and there's a a kid who's coming for the first time, and she's like nine. And the coach, who is probably the most important person in Russian tennis. Um, her name is Larissa. She spots the girl instantly, sees the door open, and the girl walks in kind of tentative. She has a racket in a, in a plastic bag, grocery bag. And the, the coach, Larissa, comes over holding a tennis ball. And she says, hello, I'm glad to see you, to the girl. And then she says, I want you to do something for me. She says, I want you to catch this. And, and the girl sets down her racket, and the, the coach tosses the ball, and the girl catches it. And the, girl just, the coach just says, good job. You know, like it was 10 second interaction. It was super small. But in that space, you could watch that girl go from outsider to safety from like, what the hell am I doing here? Do I even care about tennis to like really connecting to this coach? And it's not it wasn't woo woo at all. It was about clarity. The coach was was understood exactly what that person would what anybody would feel like coming to a new place. And she sent a really clear signal of connection by tossing that ball to her. And so when I went to visit the SEALs and when I went to visit Pixar and went to visit those places, they all do that. Like like if, on your first day of Pixar, they actually – you sit in the you sit in the fifth row of the auditorium. And this is for everybody. For If you're hired as a barista, if you're hired as a, as a tech person, if you're hired as a director, you sit in the fifth row of the auditorium because that's where the directors like to sit to watch a movie. And the head of Pixar comes in and he says this. He says, whatever you did before – you're a movie maker now. We need you to help make our films better. Like that's it. That's all he says. But that's the tennis ball toss. Like that's the thing. It's not like welcome to Pixar. We kick ass. Like we're great. You know, it wasn't about Pixar at all. It was like it was actually an expression of vulnerability. Like we need you. Like we need you to help make our films better. So all this stuff, it's it's not about just kind of like being warm and fuzzy and gentle. It's actually about being really clear. And that's what you find in great cultures and among great leaders, this extraordinary clarity about the connections they form. Well, and one of the things that I think was really important that you highlighted was the misconception about highly successful cultures. Mm. Can you share about that? Well, you know, there's, 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 a lot of, there's a lot of sort of misconceptions. The biggest one for me is that there are places where everyone is just sort of confident all the time and, <laughs> and kind of bulletproof. Like where the leaders, like the, you, you think of Navy SEALs and Pixar and you just sort of think like, man, they've got it figured out, you know, or the San Antonio Spurs, like they know what to do all the time, especially their leaders. And what I found was exactly the opposite. They were constantly expressing how little they knew, the mistakes they made, the weaknesses they wanted to share um, with everybody. You know, one of the Navy SEAL commanders I met, 
the guy who trained the troops that got bin Laden, says the most important four words any leader can say are, I screwed that up. And what they all realize is the power of what's called a vulnerability loop. When one person is vulnerable, especially a leader, especially a leader, they send a signal that permits other people to be vulnerable. And that vulnerability isn't just about getting warm and close with each other. It's about like information. It's about making sure that we're exchanging accurate information with each other. If we don't do that, how can we be a good group? So the leaders were not bulletproof. They were not super confident. In fact, they were constantly doing the opposite. They were constantly sending signals like, hey, man, we, we really – we really messed that up, didn't we? I think I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about what's going to happen. They would say stuff like that all the time. And it wasn't because they were trying to fake it. It was because they understood that in order to be strong, they needed to be weak together. Like that's what real strength is. And there's a phrase that like sums it up. It's, uh, it's a backbone of humility. And humility is not meekness. It is a backbone. It is, it is a strength. And that's what these places have got because, you know, the world moves fast. You know, a lot of, there's no one person can have all the answers. It, it's, there's not, maybe that worked 50 years ago when you were building Model Ts and, and doing really simple things. But most things in every, in the sports space and all the spaces, it's, they're complicated problems. So the leaders get that and they're constantly um, sending these vulnerability loops uh, out there so that people can get better at solving problems together. It's it's interesting because you would think, one would think, especially in the SEALs, right, the whole macho, tough right. guy, tough people, that the last thing that they would do would say, I screwed up. Oh, it is the, it's actually the first thing they do. They have a thing called, they actually have turned into a habit. It's almost like a cultural calisthenic. They, they, they finish a mission and they get off the helicopter and before they take a nap before they have a meal they they circle up and they start going through the mission and they focus on where did we screw up they try to figure out what did we do wrong what did we do right and what are we going to do differently next time that's it and they're really short awkward meetings cuz it's it's hard there's this you so why did you turn left instead of right why did you shoot there instead of there they're confronting the mistakes and they're trying to build this shared mental model of what they do and the meetings are not fun like they're, they're kind of awkward and embarrassing and a little painful at times, but it's the exact kind of pain. Like with our physical bodies, we understand that like pain is good in some ways. Like if you go to the gym and feel the burn, you get the gain, right? No pain, no gain. We understand that. Well, groups are built exactly the same way. Like you have to have that pain of like telling the truth, not in a vicious or brutal way, but just telling the, the, the truth of what happened if you're going to get smarter and stronger. Well, I think that's the important message too of that it's not all, you know, love and connection and, oh, let me, let me be nice and gentle to you so that your confidence doesn't get shattered. Totally. Totally. There's that other misconception, which is that these places are all really happy, happy, nice, nice. Like, oh, Pixar, like it's awesome at Pixar. It's not awesome at Pixar. It's hard. You know, they do great work. And there's a deep level of engagement there, but it's not, you know, fun sort of comes in two flavors. You have shallow fun, which is playing ping pong together, which is having a blast and laughing and, 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 and just goofing around. That is wonderful, but there's deep fun and deep fun is solving really hard problems together. And deep fun is not necessarily 
um, really fun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it's super engaging and it's like, like nothing else. It can be really uh, addictive almost. And that's the feeling you get in these good cultures. It's not bean bags and, and, uh, you know, seashells and, and balloons all the time. It is, there's some of that. It's definitely present. But what really is, is that deep level of engagement where even the people that leave these places, like a really good culture, and maybe we all can relate to this, like there's places where you say like, oh, I, I work in there is really hard, but I, I, I can't leave. Or maybe I left, but I went back because I just couldn't get that feeling that I got from that, that I had in that group. And, and that's the feeling where it's like you keep, you kind of love the hardness of it. Um, and, and by the same token, like there's a, there's sort of the assumption that a lot of these cultures, a lot of these great groups have got it figured out that they kind of have cracked, cracked the code, <laughs> if you will. They're, they haven't, like they are struggling with these same issues. They're struggling with, uh, the, the problems that success brings. They're struggling with the problem of, of how do you sort of pass it on to the next generation who seems to have a different set of values. They struggle with all that stuff. The only difference is that they... They struggle with it with a level of understanding and with with their facing into the problem and really wrestling with it. But the idea that somehow if we get the culture right, we'll all be walking on the clouds and everything will be heavenly and wonderful is just not true. I mean, um, you know, even when you have a good culture, even when you have a great culture, um, it's it's still the, the the sort of hard work of, of human interaction and of, of trying to figure out how to solve hard problems together. Well, but isn't that what you talk about in the talent code where it was the deep practice and there's that struggle and that's where the growth came and um, was from that deep practice out of that struggle. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's just the way we humans are built, both an individual way, which I, you know, sort of told, told that story. That's how our brains are built. Mm -hmm. But the sort of theme of all this stuff is just sort of a deep human truth, which is that stress brings growth. You know, like mm -hmm. we are resilient people. And when we stress our muscles, they get stronger. When we stress our brains, they get smarter, stress them in the right way, not just sort of meaningless, you know, pain or, or, or crazy anxiety, but, but stress of getting to the edge of your ability, making mistakes, and then learning from those mistakes. Groups are built the same way, you know, by, by building a group and the best sort of metaphor, visual metaphor I've found is like, have you ever seen these, these, they're these flocks of, um, of birds called starlings and they, they form these beautiful kind of clouds of birds. They're able to make decisions at, at, at an instant. They just, it's mo the most amazing thing. Cause it's, it's sort of like a bunch of fish moving through a coral reef. Like they're all totally connected, solving problems together. Um, that, that is a, that happens when people are, you know, when you're sort of having a group that is tuned into a handful of little signals about where are we, where are you, where are we going together? Um, and it's that level of attention to each interaction that is almost athletic. It's almost like in great cultures, what you have people who who approach leadership like a communication athlete. Like, and that's what it, what what good culture sort of is at the very basis. It's like communication athletes who are who are consistently delivering these really simple signals, like we're safe, we share the truth, and we're headed this direction. Well, and isn't like doing this hard stuff, because I think about 
um, the kids that I coach and the parents, a lot of times the parents will say, I just want my kid to be happy. I just want my kid right. to be happy. And they'll want to take away the obstacle. And I know you've coached Little League, right? And they want to take away the obstacles. They don't want the problems to have happen because again, they're worried about shattering their kid's confidence. Right. And what I keep trying to talk about is that, look, these kids get to be courageous in a relatively safe environment. So if they right. get DQ'd or if they get striked out, like, so what? in the realm of things, right? It's not a bad way to fail. But then when they realize that, hey, if I commit to something and I'm willing to go through the struggle and I'm willing to go through the hardship and I'm willing to go through if it's a plateau on a time, but then I come out the other end and I blow my own mind. That is, I mean, it's priceless, right? To be able to go, wow, I did this. And I think that's what you're talking about in these cultures of they go through difficult times but when they come out, it's like, holy moly, we created this film, you know, it made half a billion dollars, or we, right. you know, just won another NBA championship, or, you know, we we got Osama bin Laden. We can blow our own mind of, we have obstacles, or we have perceived obstacles of what is in the way, and then how do we solve that challenge so that we get the result that we want? That's exactly right. And, there, and there's, a, there's a cool moment that I began to sort of see almost as a sort of a litmus test of how... Uh, how a group functions. And it basically comes down to like, how does a group respond when there's a problem? And, and let's say one of the, let's say you're, you know, a swimmer doesn't do very well in a meet. How does the coach respond to that? And how does the team respond to that? There's a, there's, there's a moment where like the culture can really have a big impact beyond words or anything. But if people kind of turn away from the problem and energy goes down or people turn into the problem and the energy level kind of goes up, there's a great clip. Um, I was talking to this guy who coached the uh, Chinese national diving team, which is like the most insanely successful diving team on the planet. Like they'll have, <laughs> they'll have an international tournament. I think at one of them, they won 18 of 24 possible medals. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're the only country. They could just, they could just have the, all three spots on the podium all day long. Um, and at there, they've got this cool sort of training culture where you've got everybody training under one roof. You've got the, the experts training alongside kind of the non the non best ones and they have this extraordinary support uh that happens one of the divers in the in the clip that he saw and i think i wrote a blog post about this a couple years ago there's a clip of somebody trying a dive that's never been done before it's like a triple flip off a handstand so he's starting at a handstand on a high board he does this triple flip and he completely botches it he lands on his back and it's just the most horrible back flop you've ever seen and he gets a standing ovation like because he tried this thing so that's how they dealt with failure in a great culture. And that's how they, and that, that is a litmus test of how actually do we respond when there's a big problem. And, and in a great team and in a great culture, you have people lean in to that moment and really get the most out of it and, and really salute the heroism of people who are going beyond what they can do because it is heroic. And how do they develop that? Right. Because we all understand. I mean, it's it's pretty much especially in our culture of, oh, yeah, fail fast, fail often, get up. But the intellectual knowing and the actual implementing, I see a big gap. Yeah, it depends a lot. There's something kind of the I'd call it the shadow of leadership. This is where one coach can have a huge impact. Um, You know, we really are hierarchical creatures. And, and when there is that one coach, and I guess we can sort of picture him in that last anecdote, you know, the old Chinese coach on the side, maybe he's the first one to clap, mm-hmm. right? Maybe he's the person who set or she's the person that sets that tone that people pick up on. 
And so that's what I, if I had to sort of guess the biggest, the highest leverage way to, to turn that into actual behavior as opposed to just understanding it intellectually, it's the emotional response of the powerful people in the room when there's a problem. How, what happens? If the boss, somebody brings a bad report and the boss kind of closes her eyes for a minute and winces, that is a massive signal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and what we see in good cultures is culture is the boss opens their eyes and, and says, thank you. Like, it's not enough to like not shoot the messenger. That was one of the, one of the takeaways in the book. Like it was a professor from Harvard who put it this way. She's like, it's not enough not to shoot them. Like that's a low bar. You know what I mean? Like, don't just not shoot them. You actually have to actively embrace those bad moments and those, that bad news, because that sends this massive signal that we're learning from this. Like, I'm not going to BS you guys. That is bad news, but we're going to get better and we're all going to learn from it. And, and that's what you see with good leaders in that culture. They're the ones who can, who can ring that bell. Well, and you, and you have many examples in your book, whether it's Popovich or the Pixar leaders or SEALs, right? And IDEO. What about when you're in a situation where you're the employee but you have the leader that winces. How do right. you then celebrate the, okay, what can we learn from this, even though you're not getting that leadership? Because, I mean, let's face it, a lot of people who work in companies, corporations, organizations are in that situation because they don't have vulnerable leaders. Right. You should quit immediately. That's the only thing you can do. <laughs> Just to quit. I'm out of here. Um, no, that, that's, a, that's a great question because most of us, you know, it's one thing to sort of say, oh, the leader has this unbelievable power. But it also flows upstream. I mean, there's, it's not just the leader who's, who's in charge. There are many, many examples of places where um, people lower on the, on the pecking order can, can have that, that sort of power. And a lot of it has to do with kind of the daily habits that they're able to create. That was one of the things that I saw over and over in these places that people who weren't leaders, they were able to perform a kind of – leadership level cultural stuff like one guy at google he wasn't that high up but he had this he just really loved to drink coffee and he would have these 10 or so engineers in his in a diverse bunch of group have coffee every day and that thing that 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 little gathering where they would come together and share their problems and he kind of built a platform for continual innovation and it was incredibly powerful. Um, so building that kind of a, of a habit that can happen outside the official bubble of, of work, um, can be, can be a really simple but effective way to kind of build small culture. I mean, and the other thing to remember is that, you know, all culture extends about 20 feet from where you sit. Right. Like, like you do not, you cannot, you know, have, have a massive effect on your huge organization, but you can have a giant effect on those 20 feet around you. And so, and those are the 20 feet that you spend the most time in anyway. And so finding ways to, uh, to do that and a really simple way to send that signal too is just, is through something that this guy, this, another Google guy actually told me about this one. He calls it the two line email and you send an email to people you work with and you say, Hey, could you tell me, you know, just real quick, I'm mean, just interested in improving and I'm real. Could you tell me one thing you want me to stop doing? Um, one thing you want me to keep doing? That's it. Like, just tell me those things. And, and that is a small email like that tennis ball to coach through, but it sends this massive signal of connection and of, of respect and of wanting to get better. And in your domain, um, regardless of, of whether your boss winces or not, you can have, you can have an impact that can make your life better. 
Okay, so those are really scary questions, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, does this, right. does this guy have like just incredible self-confidence? Or does, is he a bit afraid as he's sending this? Oh, I think he's a bit afraid, but you, you, it's like, I mean, it's, it's scary to jump into a swimming pool too. I mean, <laughs> like it's fear. Um, but I think, uh, it's the kind of thing that actually what ends up happening is it sort of ends up flipping and everybody ends up, um, sending out everybody you send that to ends up sending it out themselves because you're sending this signal. Like it's really important to sort of get that feedback and share that feedback. And, um, that ends up being the valued thing, the feedback, right? So that actually happened at this sports team that I work with. And one of the leaders sent it out. And then next thing you knew, like the other people around him were sending very similar emails because everybody realized, wait, this is really valued here. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is important. So totally scary. But all the places, all these good cultures that I visited for the book, they were really good at generating that exact scary moment. Because if you don't have it, you're not growing. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't have that scary moment, you should be scared. Because it means that you're not taking the, exactly the kind of risk to get exactly the kind of feedback that can make you better. Um, and, you know, in some businesses, it's okay not to get better. But that's a small number and it's diminishing. Like if you are actually cut off from sources of feedback that could improve you, you're, you're in a bad spot. Okay. So I want to get some more clarity around this. Scott Scratton has a saying that, um, don't try to win over the haters. You're not the jackass whisperer. Mm -hmm. And so when you're asking these questions, are you sending them to the haters who are immediately going to, you know, give you a list or are you sending them to people who are going to give you good feedback? Like totally. Totally. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, and, and the, the, the kind of bad apples in a culture, I mean, most of the, most of the research and I, you know, uh, is that it is extraordinarily hard to deal with someone who is a bad apple and that most good cultures are very ruthless about getting rid of them very quickly. No jerks allowed because they can have a massive effect on everybody. So, um, yes, I would, I would say your instincts are exactly right there. Don't, don't try to be a jackass whisperer. <laughs> So get the feedback, but really from people that you respect, who you believe will give you honest feedback of where your weaknesses are, where your strengths are, and right. and and be really honest. I mean, one of the things you talk about is it's not necessarily, you don't call it brutally honest, but but where they, I think Popovich does this. He can just be very very hard, right, right. But then he's also you're part of this family as well. It's, there's a warmth to it. I mean, when you talk about giving feedback, there's a certain type of response to that, which I'm just going to be, I'm going to be, I got to be brutally honest with you. Um, and what ends up happening though, is a lot of times that just creates and enforces a culture of brutality. And actually brutality is antithetical to what's happening here. What's really happening is what I would call warm candor. You know, what you've got is a signal of connection, a good, it's where you're saying, I'm telling you this, but the, it's, it's all under this umbrella of, of connection. Cause I, cause I care, uh, about, uh, our relationship about, about our, the work we do together. And I'm, I'm giving this to you not because I have all the answers, but because I just, I'm, I'm trying to just put a spotlight on something. And the best example I can think of that, um, for the book, I was with this great restaurant, uh, called the Gramercy Tavern and they are mm-hmm. like the Navy SEALs of waitstaff. I mean, they're really, really, really highly trained and very, very successful. Um, 
And I was there on the first day of a, of a server. Her name was Whitney, and she had trained for six months for her first day at the front of the house. So six months, she's at the back. She's an under under server, and she's moving up to be a, a front-of-the-line server. And it's her first day, so it's like, a, it's like a pitcher on opening day, like a rookie pitcher going out to the mound. So right before she's going to go out, there's a, her manager comes over and says something to her. And I'm kind of thinking as he comes over to her. What's he going to say? Like, you know, right? What does a coach say before he hands somebody the ball on, on the mound at Yankee Stadium? And um, what he said was, he, I, I thought he would say, like, good luck, you know, go get them something really supportive. He didn't say anything supportive at all. Actually, what he said was, if you don't ask me for help 10 times today, it's going to be a disaster, <laughs> which is really an interesting thing to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he didn't say, like, you're going to get hammered out there, which would have been brutally honest. It's true. It's your first day. You're probably going to get hammered out there. Like you're you're going to get turned upside down. Like that's true. That's that's probably true. But no, what he what he said was warm. What he said was basically, I expect you to ask me for help a lot today. I'm going to hope to talk to you a lot today. You know, reach out to me, um, because it's a it it really is a message of of connection and support, um, and a brilliant message of connection and support. So that's what you find in these places where it's it's honest. She did screw up at least ten times that day, but every time she did, she knew that the manager had her back, and that it was a learning moment, not a judgmental moment. And as a result, that's how you get good performance. It's not again. It's not like let's all be warm and fuzzy and hold mm-hmm. hands and sing kumbaya. It is moments of total clarity that matter where he delivered this great signal at the exact time she needed to hear it, which was, we're all connected. We're here to help you. Let's work together. That's really the message that they got, which was high candor, high connection, and totally effective. Well, he gave her permission to say, reach out for help. You know, you do not want to go this alone. Don't think you're going to be courageous and you're going to be a great worker because you go it alone. Reach out for help. Because obviously we think, oh, if I'm going to be really good, I don't need anybody, which is a huge myth of vulnerability. So that was an amazing moment. And it was a small moment. I mean, right? It didn't take hours to say it was one small message that meant a lot. It's so true. It's so true. That's the thing about these about these signals. And somebody's going to invent like an app that captures them. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it's like they happen in good groups all the time. And they're very subtle. And they're very simple. I came across another one just the other day where like this, this, it was another perfect example of it. This guy at Pixar, he's the head of Pixar. He's, he's the co-president of Pixar, probably the, one of the keenest minds in animation technology today. His name's Ed Catmull. He's a legend. And there are a bunch of young engineers at Pixar and they're working on this problem. And Ed Catmull comes and he stands and he watches them work for a while. And he asks what they're working on. And they tell him what's this new protocol we're using. And he'd watch them. And then he says, Hey, when you're done, could you swing by my office and teach that to me? It's like, <laughs> it takes three seconds to say. And yet I'm I, the, the Google engineer that told me that story, like got goosebumps about it 10 years later. Like mm-hmm. this happened 10 years ago. He's got goosebumps about it because Catmull understands just like that manager um, at, at Gramercy Tavern understands, just like the Navy SEAL commander understands. It's like, it's not magic. It's signaling. And he's, able to create this great signal of safety and vulnerability saying we're safe here and I want to learn from you. Like what a cool moment. He could have said, he could have big leagued them. He could have acted all, all powerful and, and, and asked a lot of questions about it in kind of a, a powerful way. No, he's the, he's like, he's curious. He genuinely wants to learn it and let's go spend an hour in my office and teach me this thing. I mean, it's, it's so simple, but it's so powerful. 
Okay, so speaking to this, you know, it's not like Catmull and these other guys had your book, The Culture Code, to go, oh, these are the small things that I need to do. Right. So how do they learn this? Well, human beings have been around for a long time, right? And 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 these we're all driven by we're all kind of wired the same. And I would say that most of these guys came out of some environment. Uh, for Greg Popovich, it was the military actually that taught him how how important this stuff was. Um, uh, for uh, each of them, came out of some micro environment. Maybe it was family. You know, maybe it was school. Maybe it was sports. That where they learned at a very very deep level that. Uh, how to lead and how to communicate. And that yeah, if you want to get a culture that's that's greater than the sum of its parts that can really perform together, it doesn't happen by magic. You have to be a communication athlete constantly hitting these signals. And, and once you get kind of exposed to it, it's sort of like having goggles put on. You start to see it everywhere. Like you walk into the bakery that you love and you start to notice how they greet you, right? It's, it's everywhere because that's how we're built. Like like so these guys are lucky mostly that they were that i would say there are two things these, these men and women who are really good at it they're lucky because they were put in a situation where they were surrounded by it and they're attentive and i think they're very attentive and intentional about their leadership they reflect on leadership a lot they reflect on the way they communicate a lot um, and i think that's sort of rare i think in in this day and age it's really easy just to sort of go through life and um and not carve out that extra time to really think deeply. Uh, but I saw that I saw that over and over again. These they would, they would spend like days thinking about like a ten second interaction, like you know. And I don't know that Ed Catmull thought about that beforehand and said, oh, "I'm going to go ask these guys to teach it to me." Or if he does that every to every group, maybe he does. Um, there certainly is a they understand theater. They understand how these things work, but. Um, it's there, they were in the right spot and they paid attention and it's like any other skill. Like it's once you start, once you start doing it and you see how well it works and you see the difference between being this way and being the other way, the authoritative way, um, it's a no brainer. It can be kind of addictive. So I want to give the listeners hope, right? Because I mean, you're talking about these big people with these, you know, big lives and a lot of people aren't going to have those kind of lives. Um, and I think about, you know, I've had kind of a behind the stage pass with my husband and him developing Olympians and stuff and watching how he's evolved. Not a good communication person, especially mm -hmm. when he was younger, he's kind of a jerk. Uh, yep. And it, it wasn't that he didn't care, he just didn't really know how to communicate. But I think back in 2012, after the Olympics, and he came back and he coaches at UC Davis, the women. And one of the things that he learned from the whole Olympic experience that year was, you don't have to be perfect to be amazing. And he would mm -hmm. tell that to his women athletes all the time. Cause you think about the wow. stories that college women have, especially women who are in these suits and, you know, our sports better now, but like in the eighties, there was a high rate of eating disorders. Yep. And yep. so, you know, I think my husband with the decades of coaching, the having a wife, having three daughters, you know, the, and the athletes and, and all of that stuff is over time, he's become much better and much more yeah. compassionate Right. Even though he's always been somebody that's highly competitive and wants to have these high level results, right? And and I I just want to put that out there because when you said that, well, these guys were lucky, aren't we all? Don't we all have luck? I mean, we can all have an opportunity to learn. And I think the thing that you said that was key is, are you willing to reflect? Yeah, right. 
Right. That's what it takes. I mean, all learning happens in the loop, right? You have mm-hmm. experience and you have reflection. And we can have all the experiences you want, but unless you carve out that time to really look at good leaders like your husband was lucky enough to do and really think about what works and what doesn't work, um, it's very simple, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, it's, it's hard to kind of look at yourself and to, to actually, you know, I like that word reflect because it really is about looking in a mirror, you know, where you are now and where you might want to be and seeing what the difference is, where the gaps are. Um, and it's a, it's a never ending process, but I love that story of your husband. It's so cool. And yet more proof that women, um, you know, the sort of the tip of the, the values and skills that, that typically get rendered as being more feminine should take over the world because they work a lot better than the ones that are typically described as male, um, male attributes of being super tough and competitive. Like that stuff gets you certain, you know, to a certain spot, but it doesn't get you all the way. Yeah. Well, and the, I mean, these messages and, and realizing that like that reflecting or you can say the wrong things, right? You can make mistakes. And it goes back to Carol Dweck's stuff, who we both love, you know, mm-hmm. of being able to say, Ooh, I really I said that and that did not go well. What can I learn from it? Maybe we circle back with that person. Or maybe it's the next generation that you're working with, you know, whether they're yep. employees coming through the door or athletes or students, whoever it is that you're working with, and saying, Okay, this is what I did. What can I do better? And that's, I think, a lot of what your book talks about is, okay, here we were, here we're going. What do we need to do to get there? That's right. And it's, that's what the cool part of that conversation, especially when you have it in a group, is that you do, you can create just a learning machine, you know? Um, you can you can create these series of conversations. It's almost like addictively powerful because it does make everybody better. Uh, and that idea that you can have a group of people that both cares about you and improves you is really really cool and remarkable. And that's why that's why we love being parts of cool groups. I mean, that's why you know you guys are are so invested and involved. It's so fun to be part of that kind of um, connection and candor and improvement. It's great. So I want to talk about trust and vulnerability, right? Because you you said something in your book that really had me stop and think that vulnerability happens first and then it's trust. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah, we typically think like when we talk about trust, we typically think that trust like gets built by spending time together. Like we're going to build trust and that it just sort of evolves over time. That's actually not true. I mean, you can get comfort over time, but the only way to actually build trust, and again, we got to go back just a little bit to the evolutionary brain on this, is by being vulnerable together. Like by actually being weak together. Um, that is the only way we can actually build build trust. This idea that you can just sort of automatically build it is totally wrong because think about the people you're closest to. Think about the moments that have created the most trust in your life. Think about the the crises and disasters you've gone through. That is where trust happens. And that's where trust is built, not in this zone of comfort. It's in this zone of risk. And so what good groups do is that they sort of leverage that. They are able, they create moments of mutual vulnerability in their people all the time. And there's habits like the after action reviews we talked about before, like the, these other meetings that Pixar has called brain trusts, which are sort of similar where everyone is sort of naked and, and struggling with problems. Um, whether it's, or, or think about this, like, this is a weird connection that, but, uh, 
You know how everybody's like addicted to Soul Cycle right now? <laughs> not me, like, but yes. What is it? Everyone in the world. Yeah, not me either. But but there's this thing where people talk about it and their mm-hmm. eyes start to light up and they glaze over and it's like a cult. Da, 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 da. Well, same with all these other things, right? Think about the obstacle course racing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Spartan racing and all that. Those phenomena. Think about what they have in common. People are in pain mm-hmm. and they're in proximity. When you do pain and proximity, you create bonds, especially when you throw in some other kind of synchronous behaviors. But like people go crazy for these types of events and it's not an accident. They're just leveraging this human truth that you only get close if you get uncomfortable together and show genuine weakness together. That's where bonds are created. And so smart groups will take advantage of that. And once we realize that, um, it, it sort of changes you know, it sort of flips your, the way you usually approach interactions. Like at, at work, we typically approach interactions to hide vulnerabilities and to, and to hide things. But what can be far more powerful is to find simple ways to create conversations around them, real conversations. Like I know this group that has a little award for whoever screwed up most during the week. And they have a trophy that goes on with it. And they sort of tell these competitive stories of like who had the biggest screw up during the week, you know, the sales call where they had the name wrong or whatever it was. Right. And they share these and it's hilarious and it's real and it makes it really safe to have those conversations and it doesn't diminish their desire for excellence anymore, but it, it makes it, um, it, it creates this closeness because that's the way trust is built when those moments of mutual vulnerability and the keyword is mutual. Like you can't just be one person. It's got to be both people like actually being, being vulnerable. And, uh, and that is where, where actual trust is built. Well, and that's part of like Dr. Kristen Neff from University of Texas. She talks about self-compassion and common humanity is an attribute of that where it's like, oh, you're not the only one. Oh, you had a really bad sales call. Let me show you, you know, you're not the only person yeah, that's gone through that. Me. Yeah. Right. And then you just start to realize like, oh, it doesn't mean I'm a failure and it's over for me. It was a crappy week. Right. What can I do this week? And that's the resilience that you're talking about. Right. And I can learn from that, from that person. Some people have a failure wall where they will, you know, put up examples of all the things they failed at in and out of work and mm-hmm. making that a possible conversation where it's not just, it's not hidden. Uh, you're not secretly managing your status all the time. Um, you know, you can have, you can have real conversations about, about real problems and you can get really better at them. Ooh, I like that idea of a failure wall because I think about in terms of stories, right? The stories you tell yourself, if you can look at your failure wall and not make, not get so attached to it that, oh, this defines me. It's Mm -hmm. like, instead you're just owning it. This is what's happened and this is where I'm going. Exactly. It ends up being this, this, Again, it goes back to like weak groups hide their weakness. Strong groups share them. Mm-hmm. So only by being kind of weak together can you really become strong. So how does mental contrasting play into all of this? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like the stories, story is a really powerful drug. You know, story is probably the most important, most powerful drug ever invented for its effect on the mind. And when you've got, when you think about your your story. It was this technique that was invented by this woman, Gabrielle Otingen, and she found this incredible response. And it was this, it was when she would have people reflect on something they really, really wanted. Like, I really want to run a marathon. I really want to lose 20 pounds. I really want to reconnect with my high school best friend. And to really reflect on the, on the goal, like I'm going to get there, um, what it would feel like to get there, what it would feel like to cross the finish line at that marathon. And then she had them reflect on the biggest obstacle in the way of that goal. 
like for the marathon, it might be, oh, that, that feeling of hitting snooze every morning rather than running my workout. Like what's that, what's the obstacle? What's the feeling that's stopping you from getting the temptation, the biggest temptation that's between you and it, or to lose 20 pounds, you're, you'd reflect your barrier would be the smell of chocolate chip cookies or something like that. So she'd have them just reflect like almost in a meditative way, reflect on the goal, reflect on the barrier, reflect on the goal, reflect on the barrier. And what she found is that that mere act of doing that changed behavior. It changed people's behavior. People actually trained harder for the marathon and lost more weight and became better at what they wanted to get better at, which is kind of a weird thought, you know, this weird idea that you are, by changing what's in your windshield, by reflecting on those decision, on the moments of goal and barrier, that you can actually change behavior. Because what I found in the in the groups is that that mental contrasting is something that that groups also leverage. They take advantage of that by filling the windshield with these images of what the group wants to achieve, and also filling images filling filling the windshield with kind of the barriers between that. So by constantly creating situations where you're reflecting on those big questions, what do I want? What's in the way? You can actually change behaviors, which is kind of crazy, but I guess it's, it's just how we're wired. We're wired to pay deep attention to those, to a barrier and to a goal. And so by, rather than letting your brain run around all distracted all the time, actually focus your energies on thinking about, okay, what do I want and what's in the way? Well, it comes back to this idea that the obstacle is the way, right? Because sometimes I think when people set goals, they think it's going to be this nice, shiny road. And and I, again, I come across this all the time with parents or even with clients of, oh, this is what I want. Oh, here's an obstacle. I guess I can't yeah. have it. Well, no. <laughs> how can we figure out how to get around the obstacle or get over the obstacle or get through the obstacle? And when people can understand that the obstacles are the path, are part of right. the path, right? It's like there's right. these falling down moments. But it sounds like to me, as you're talking about this, that it's really, you have to be able to do that from a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Totally. You have to be able to see that you can, I mean, fixed mindset, you may as well sort of forget about a lot of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like if it's fixed mindset, you're probably not listening to this podcast because you've decided that you're all set. You don't need it. You know, <laughs> like, why would you listen to this podcast if you were fixed mindset? I think those people have a different podcast, which is probably just like, I'm good. That's probably what it's called. Like I'm, I'm good. Um, so like, yes, fixed mindset is absolutely a prerequisite for this kind of thing because you have to have the, the, the feeling that you can, you can change and that, and that the, that these barriers, um, you know, are, are, are really stepping stones toward that stuff. You have to go through them and over them and on top of them to, to get to where you want. I just want to clarify, you mean growth mindset, correct? Yes, growth mindset. Did I say fixed again? You said fixed again. That's okay. Sorry. Sorry. And I, I, I guess I learned from that. Okay. So now that you're done with this book, I have a question for you, Dan. Mm. Now that the book is done, is there something that you would have changed? You know, there always is. That is a question that you just, whenever you open a book as a writer, there's always, you kind of wince at certain things. Um, I had uh, I had extra time with this one. I, we had we had this just the way the schedule worked out. So I actually did all those flinchy changes like right before it came out. But there, you know, there's there's 
there's always stuff. That's one of those things where everybody thinks from a distance, oh, the, you know, the book is all shiny and it looks all finished and all, every word is nicely typeset and everything. It looks like it's sort of meant to be. But right behind that are all these agonizing little choices that sometimes I find myself, ooh, I wonder if that was right. So yeah, like a billion things I would make little changes to. Nothing big, nothing mm-hmm. big. I think you got the big stuff right. Um, Thanks, thanks to having a lot of time and a lot of good editors and a lot of good readers and help from my wife and my brother and my editor and everybody else. But um, yeah, no, I don't think I would change anything big. And how do you let go of the wincing and just go, hey, yay me. I wrote this book. I was all in. I was committed. I did the best that I could. Yeah, it's, 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 it feels, it feels, I think mostly, you know, um, this is number seven for me. So I've kind of gotten used to this, this process of having, having it out there. And even with the little niggling changes, just feeling like, you know, just having conversations like these where people seem to be able to, you know, connect to it and apply the ideas to their world. And it creates conversations in the last like week or so I've had conversations with pro sports teams and with places like Google and places that are Facebook that are like everybody's wrestles with culture and groups. Mm-hmm. And, and there's an area of, of uh, urgency around those conversations. And the fact that they've been able to take some of these ideas and use them as a lens to talk about their own problems in a new way has been really fun. That's awesome. And that's something, you know, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, I'm like, gosh, how many people actually read books anymore? Mm. And then how many people actually finish books? Because I, I buy a lot of books, like, you know, and I read a fair amount, but I don't finish a lot of books. And then the knowing versus the implementing. Yeah. Right. right. And that that's the real beauty is that, okay, taking all this great information you have in there, and then actually practicing it in your life. Right. That's where the magic is, isn't it? That's the fun part. And and, and, and both in sort of starting to do stuff. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, at the end of each chapter, I did these ideas mm-hmm. for action where I could put in all these little things that I bumped into, um, some of which we've talked about today, like just little, little things that, that you can apply and use and, and, and also kind of to create conversation across different domains. When you can have a conversation with a military person and then a software person and then a sports team and then a school and the fact that everybody can kind of be glomming on to the same ideas and using them in different ways, it's uh, that part of it's really fun. Like the, the, the sort of conversations after the book, that's the, that's the funnest part. Well, and that's what I like about your books like this and the talent code is that you look at what we would perceive as very different arenas, but you tie them together because the human experience is all the connection. Right. So whether it's the seals or, or Pixar, there's still the same fundamentals within it and it applies to all of us. So thank you so much. My pleasure. You, you're living this stuff. It's, it's nice to reconnect. I hope it doesn't take me, you know, five more years to write another book, but, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's fun to, fun to hear all the stuff you guys are up to. Congrats on all your success. All right, Dan, thank you so much. All the best. Culture is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. I think about the cultures that we have. I think about in the team that I lead, I think about with the clients that I work with and the companies and organizations that I work with. What is the culture? Because when we can have a culture where people can thrive and our best selves can show up, we can do really great work or we can swim fast or whatever the success is, right? I always talk about that nebulous thing of what does success mean? What does enough really mean for you? So I'm so appreciative of Dan coming and talking about this because as you know, I love vulnerability. I love to talk about belonging. I mean, that's such a huge component of everything that I do. Every 
relationship, every group that I run or like the team is having a place for people to belong, where they can authentically be themselves. It's really, really important to me. So of course, I just love dance stuff because it just kind of validates what I do, whether as a swim coach with the talent code or the culture code in what I do as a life coach and in organizations that I work with. I want to get back to a few things that he said. I want to be able to highlight because I think it's really important. And when he talked about the people who would go and ask questions, what's one thing that you'd like me to stop doing? What's one thing that I'm doing really well? It's really, really important that you share things with people who've earned the right to hear it. With One of the boundaries of vulnerability is you don't put yourself in harm's way. And what I mean by that is it goes back to that whole jackass thing. If there's somebody in your life who's a hater, that may not be the person's opinion you ask because they may be angry about something and project it onto you that you have nothing to deal with about versus somebody who is going to give you feedback. And they may say, look, this frankly did suck. It was not worthwhile in the amount of money that we spent. And here is where we want to go. But they're challenging you to blow your own mind. They're challenging you to look beyond the obstacles. So understanding who are these people that have earned the right to hear your story, who've earned the right for you to be vulnerable with, that is a really important component because when you get vulnerable, Dan used the word leak, or not leak, but he used the word weak, like it's a sense of weakness that we show. I like to look at it as you're really going naked, right? You're bearing who you are, you're authentically being you. And that's scary. Because if they reject it, they're rejecting you. But what if it gives you clarity on who are your people and who aren't? And that part is really important about the vulnerability piece. The other aspect about vulnerability that's so important, as we're so afraid to be vulnerable, and and that's what Dan was talking about, the vulnerability loop, is that the thing that we really like in other people is when they show us who they are, when they show us their vulnerabilities, when they say, yeah, I really sucked at that. Or yeah, at times our marriage was in such a difficult place that I wanted a divorce. I wanted out. Those are usually the times that we attach to that person. We get integrated into wanting to know more about their story and realizing that, oh, there's that common humanity piece of I'm not the only one. So that's the power of vulnerability is that it can connect. It can breed connection with other people within organizations. That's really, really important. So while he says weak, I take it differently than the pers- the myths of vulnerability of, oh, you're weak because you share vulnerability. It's where we get naked, right? And so he has a different language than what we may have here on this show, but it's getting naked. It's bearing who we are. It's being our most authentic self. It's showing people really our weaknesses, our flaws, our mistakes. And I think that's what he means by weak. It's not that vulnerability is weakness. So I wanted to clarify that. And I apologize that I did not get that opportunity to interject and ask that question. The other part that is really important is how he talked about keeping the conversation going. And I really invite you because I really want you to take this work and not just have it in your brains, right? Because so many of us have this intellectual knowledge, but really work on implementing it. 
and use those stories within his book, use the stories that he talks about here, use stories that I share as aspirational stories. And I say this in the beginning of the show, if this is possible for them, what is possible for you? Now, here's the thing. I'm never going to be the founder of Pixar. That spot's already been taken. I'm not going to be the CEO of Pixar, and I'm definitely not going to be a SEAL. But I can take from those stories and then go, how does that apply to my life? It also can allow me to break out of the prison walls that I may have of what's possible and then be able to come from this growth mindset of, oh, here's this challenge. Here's this obstacle. What do I need to do to overcome it, to get that result that I want? What do we need to do to overcome it? And I think that's an important part of the show is that, remember, vulnerability does not mean you go it alone, right? That is a big lie. Everybody was stronger, whether it was the birds, the different companies, the seals, they were stronger when they were with the team. So remember, give yourself permission to not go it alone. And I know that can be really scary because you may be sitting here going, well, Corinne, who else do I have? And I've talked about this before. One is you've got to be willing to be brave and reach out to people. Again, with people who've earned the right to hear your story. The other is, is you can also take books, shows like this, and television shows that inspire you and think about a different way, and then start connecting with people in those areas. Okay, people that maybe like the books or people that like the show and having a dialogue and having conversation, or you can say, hey, I just heard about this book called The Culture Code and start bringing it into the workplace. And you may never know who is really interested in this conversation until you actually start talking about it. And it can blow your mind. So really implement this stuff in your life. Don't just take this and go, oh, that would be great. But, you know, I've got a really crappy boss and that's just not possible. Because remember, he said something that was really, really important. It's about affecting the 20 feet next to you. We're not talking about tens of thousands of feet next to you or tens of thousands of people that 20 feet next to you. We all have this ability in our lives to create a ripple effect. And so if you are not in a position where you can make a head, uh, you know, heads down, a top down change within your company or organization, what can you do that will create a ripple effect within the next 20 feet of you? I invite you to consider that. Do you want to live a more conscious life? Conquer fear and shame. Learn to cultivate new stories about who you are and where you're going. I've poured years of study and experience into my group coaching program to help you achieve all of this and much more. I call it enough your daring year. And I want to invite you to give me a call to see if it's the right fit for you. To see all the details and book your no obligation call today, go to howshereallydoesit.com forward slash enough. That's howshereallydoesit.com forward slash enough. Drifting 
Never been so wide awake.